today we're going to dig into God's Word here in Genesis 3. Last week I gave you an eight-word outline of the book of Genesis. Today I made it easier for you. It's printed there at the bottom of your sermon notes. So you've got this. But we're, we're quickly going through the 50 chapters of Genesis together for the next couple of months. Uh, a real rough skeleton outline of this first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings where it all starts. It begins with creation. We looked at that last week in Genesis 1 and 2. Today we get to that second word, fall. Uh, That's not a season of the year. This is the fall of man, the fall into sin, the fall from God's good plan into a world of sin. So that's the second word. Uh, The next one is flood, and that's the judgment that God brings because of sin, right? That's, That's the Noah story. Creation, fall, flood, nations... So we see now the, the, the formation of all the nations of the earth. And part of that is God's redemption plan that's going to reach out to all nations. Creation, fall, flood, nations, and then four names. Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, his son Joseph. And that brings us to the end of Genesis and gets us ready for the book of Exodus, which, by the way, the young people are studying in fire on Sunday morning. So uh, we just covered Exodus 30 today. So they're ahead of us a little bit in the story. But that'll, that'll give you kind of a good skeleton uh, outline of the book of Genesis as we're working through this together. Again, you're going to have to dig in a lot deeper than we are on Sunday morning. Uh, even if we did a chapter a week, it would take us all year to get through Genesis. Um, but, but if you were to read a chapter a day in January and February, you could read through those 50 chapters here in these two months and be be caught up and, and uh, be, be digesting more and taking in more on your own time at home or as an individual or with a life group. So I would really encourage you to do that. Today we're going to really look at, at Genesis chapter 3. And this is the story of sin entering the world now. Um, so let's, let's just begin here with the first couple of verses of Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I want to just pause for a moment there and and remind you of something maybe obvious, but this really brings it to to the forefront of our minds. You have an enemy. You have an enemy who... First Peter tells us, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You have an enemy who's dangerous, who's out to get you. His name is Satan. He's opposed to the things of God. He's an adversary. He's an accuser. He's got your number. He knows that the temptation he brings you will work for you. You know, maybe for me, he doesn't ever bring the temptation of shoplifting. It's never worked for him. It's not going to succeed. He'll bring other temptations my way like greed, lust, anger. uh, Things that he knows works for this red-blooded Irishman, right? And for you, he's got your number. He knows the technique to use for you to attack you, to bring you down, and to get you to a place where you will be in active rebellion against the God who created you and loves you. And look at the techniques that he uses. We're getting an insight here in Genesis in the strategies of our enemy. Uh, Hopefully this is going to bring some uh, sobering realization to your own life of the kind of battle that you're in. Maybe you've been 
oblivious to the fact that you're in a battle, that there is an adversary, there is an enemy. Hopefully this will open your eyes and alert you to the danger, but also give you the tools that you need to counteract his schemes and his plans. The very first thing that Satan does in his plan to attack Eve is he begins to get her to question what God said. Did God really say? He loves to create confusion. And he begins with that idea of creating confusion in Eve's mind. It's a common tactic that he uses. And, and really, it, it, the substance of that is getting her to question the king's words. Did God really even say that? Are you sure about that? Um, well, so Eve, Eve takes the sin. You know, we don't, <laughs> I would expect to see a little more shock from her at, at encountering a talking snake. Uh, we, don't, we don't get that in the story. So she just enters into a dialogue with this serpent who's talking to her. And, you know, maybe everything's just so new that she just kind of takes it in stride. But she, she responds to this question, did God actually say? Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, again, looking a little more closely at what the serpent had asked her, did God actually say? And he already puts a spin on it right there, right? He knows that God didn't say, yeah, I'm putting you in a garden full of fruit, but you can't eat any of it. And yet he's a deceiver. He, he likes to create confusion. So he takes what God had actually said, and he distorts it a little bit. Did God actually say you can't eat of any of this fruit? And that, that gets her off step a little bit. It gets her to begin to question, well, what did God actually say? And she's able to pick up on the second part and go, no, no, no. He, he said we can eat of all the trees in the garden. It's just the tree in the midst of the garden that we can not only not eat, but we can't touch it either. Now, is that a direct quote of what God actually said? Again, the, the, the enemy, he's shrewd, he's, he's uh, crafty. It says here that he's more crafty than any other beast of the field. And so he knows the technique to use uh, to get to Eve, not just the particular temptation, but the right angle and approach that's going to confuse her mind. So he begins to question, did God say, plants a lie there, and now she's responding with a a quote. Here is what God actually said. So if we go back to chapter 2 to actually read the quote, as God is placing Adam and Eve in the garden, see if it aligns with Eve's recollection of what God had said. So this is back in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a a helper fit for him. So first of all, um, maybe you'll notice that in chapter 2, as God is giving instructions about the garden and all the trees in the garden with particular attention to that one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, that God does give the, the first part of the instruction as Eve recollects it. You can eat of all the trees, 
except for that one that's in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat of that fruit. But then she adds an extra phrase that we don't see in chapter 2. And you shall not touch that tree. Now that wasn't part of what God actually, if we're going to be really literal and really wooden here, right? If you're going back, is that a direct quotation of what God said in chapter 2? Not exactly in there. God doesn't say don't touch the tree. Now, now, what's the explanation for that? Why is Eve quoting God as having said something that chapter 2 doesn't lay out? A um, couple of possibilities. Maybe, you know, Eve is just embellishing God's instructions. Maybe she's taking it to a more severe and stringent level and saying, yeah, don't, even, don't, don't go anywhere near that tree. It's danger. Don't eat it. Don't, don't look at it. Don't, don't smell it. Don't go underneath its branches. Just stay away from that tree altogether. It's danger possibly but i think what's significant here if you look back in chapter two and as we were rereading that together refreshing our memories who was god giving those instructions to it was to adam prior to eve's creation and and god's having a conversation with adam giving really explicit clear instructions about the garden it's a blessing from god it's tended by god himself it's given for man's provision that you're to enjoy this, be nourished by the, the ultimate gardener who created you in his image, designed you for a relationship with him. But there's a prohibition from this one tree that God has a one-on-one -on -one with Adam and speaks to him. And so Eve is hearing this information secondhand. It's her husband after she's created who takes her on a tour and says, here's the animals that I've named. Here's the job that God has for me, honey. By the way, this is the woman that when God created her, Adam bursts into song. And, and he's got, just like many of us men did this morning, right? As our wives were preparing for church, he just burst into song. You can't help yourself, right guys? And that's what Adam does. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Yeah, Mike and I were singing that song in our homes. Yeah. Right? And so now in that, in that joy as God has provided a helper suitable for him, He's filling her in on what has happened to this point. You know, that God is a good God. He's a loving God. He walks in the garden in the cool of the day. We are created for a relationship with him in his image, given dominion over his creation. There's one tree, Eve, that we're not to eat of. The king has given us some instructions. And maybe Adam is the one who raises the ante on that. Honey, don't even touch that tree. Don't go near it. We don't eat that fruit. We don't go near it. God has prohibited us from, from, from uh, going in that direction. We don't know exactly. So we're having to do some, some interpreting here and understanding why does Eve add that phrase? But the point is there is some confusion. There is some discrepancy in her hearing. You know, there's a verse that's on the front of your bulletin. Uh, that says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if, if hearing produces genuine faith, what do you think your enemy is going to go after? He's going to get you to question what you've heard, create a little you know, suspicion. Maybe you didn't hear it right. Um, introduce an idea that's contrary to what God has said. He's going to attack that point of hearing because he doesn't want you to have genuine faith. 
And that's what we see him doing. That's the technique that we see him using with Eve here. And it's already apparent that it may be working. As she's now uh, having this conversation with the serpent and, and, and clarifying some things, some, some supposed misunderstandings of the serpent. Oh no, we can eat of all the fruit. It's just this one that we can't eat or touch. And now the serpent replies in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so now the, the serpent is moving on to another tactic. So he's introduced confusion by getting Eve to question what God has said. Now his new technique is to get her to question the king's motives. Why did God say what he said? And even a, a bold-faced, you know, now he's going for the throat, right? That's a pretty bold statement to say, even though God said you will die, I'm here to tell you you will not die. A direct confrontation with God's very words. And so he's getting more bold, more direct. But really it's this question of the motives of God. You know, the reasoning that God uh, gave you is not true. God told you don't eat of that tree. And he said that the reason for that prohibition was that you, you would die. Well, I'm telling you, you won't die. That's a lie. The reason he doesn't want you to eat of that tree is because if you do, you will be like him. Did they need to eat of a fruit to be like God? What did we see in Genesis 1 and 2? Created in his image. They were already like God. And here's the deceiver, the liar coming in, distorting her thinking and saying, if you really want to be like God, eat this fruit that he's prohibited you from eating. Further, he's promised her knowledge of good and evil. You know, we're, we're raising a bunch of rugrats at our house. Um, like most parents, we would like our kids to have knowledge of good and evil. You know, we, we don't want to send them out in the world naive. Uh, we want them to know this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. And yet, when I read this chapter, it makes me question that strategy as a parent. Did God create us to cut him out of the equation and have direct knowledge of good and evil for ourselves? Or rather, like Jesus said at his temptation, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Was God's original design and intention that we be so dependent upon him that instead of saying, I know good and evil, I don't need you, we would go to him in every moment, in every breath, in every decision and say, Daddy, what do I do? What's right and wrong? What's good and bad? And the enemy's coming and saying, you don't need God. Just eat this fruit and you will be like him. He doesn't want you to taste it because if you do, you won't need him anymore. You'll have direct knowledge of good and evil for yourself. And he's starting to get through to Eve. Now what about you? Uh, what's your temptation when the enemy's got your number? What's his technique that's going to cause confusion? That's going to get you to question God's word? That's going to get you to question God's motive? Get that in mind, right? I'm not going to make you, you know, raise your hand, we'll go around the microphone and you tell us your greatest sin today on a Sunday morning. Although I would tell you, James 5 says there is a connection between healing and confession. 
It says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So don't live in isolation. Don't pretend like you're the one person among us who doesn't struggle with sin, but find a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Confess, pray together, experience the healing that God intends. But I want you to just have it in mind today. What's the sin issue that the enemy brings your way in a form of temptation? And now how do you counteract his techniques of confusing you as to what God actually said or getting you to doubt God's motives? How do you counteract that? Well, let me tell you what. If you want to know what God said, go to his word. Open it. And come to it with humility, not not a skepticism that says, well, I clearly know what's best, but let me see if this book aligns with my preconceived ideas. But instead, go to it going, man, I need need a heart that's changeable, that's moldable, that that the creator can shape and form. And I'm going to read some stuff that really rubs me the wrong way. And rather than making it change, I'm going to come humbly to him and say, God, change me in your presence. That's the best way to defeat these techniques that the enemy is saying. And on that day, Eve could have said, hey, honey, I got a question for you. I got a talking snake over here. Can you refresh my memory? Exactly what did God say? Because I'm going to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I don't want to listen to a snake on a tree causing confusion as to what God said or why he said it. Could she have done that with her husband? Where was he in all this story? Well, let's read on. So now Eve has heard the serpent's now direct confrontation. God is lying to you. You, I'm here to tell you, you will not die. Instead, your eyes will be opened. And so now Eve uh, starts to consider this. Verse 6, so when the woman saw three things, that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she saw these three things with her eyes, and then, and then she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. He was there the whole time, not saying anything. You know, if this were a a play, you'd be like, where are Adam's lines? You know, how come he's just standing there? Uh, We've got got a serpent talking, we've got Eve talking, we've got no dialogue coming from, from Adam whatsoever. And he's standing there passively, uh, maybe, kind of, you know, like, the, the, the analogy I think of as a hunter, I see this kind of thing in the animal kingdom, right? If you're a hunter sitting on the edge of a clearing where there's some good buck sign, you know, around, and you wait, and, you know, you've done, gotten all your clothing descented, and, you know, you, you've got out there before sun up, and you're climbing up in a tree. When you finally hear some crunching coming through the woods, the animals that come out into the clearing first are the I'm a deer hunter, right? It's the doe and the, and the yearlings. And if you wait long enough and you're patient, the big old buck might be following. But he's going to let the women and children go out into the vulnerable situation first to make sure the coast is clear before he sticks his big antlered head out 
And that's when the hunter gets the opportunity. I see Adam doing that. You know, he's been wanting to try that forbidden fruit as well. But honey, I'm going I'm to let you go ahead and talk to the snake, take a bite. We'll see how that goes. Doesn't look so bad. Yeah, yeah, maybe I'll try a nibble as well. He's letting her now lead in a way that God has called him to lead. And guys, you know, we, we've got really bad examples of leadership in our, in our world and in our culture, right? Leadership typically means I wear the pants around here. I got the mahogany desk. I call the shots. That's not at all how Jesus leads. You know, Jesus leads with a towel and basin down on his hands and knees. Jesus leads by saying, I'll be the first to die. I'll serve in that way. And that was the, the role that, you know, that was the order of creation. Why did God create Adam first and then Eve? There was some responsibility put on Adam. Like, Adam, lead the way in your family in terms of dying first and putting, putting her first and, and laying down your life first. And here, right away, part of the sin for Adam is holding back and being passive and letting Eve venture into this forbidden area that God had entrusted Adam to convey to her. We saw in chapter 2. And, and he's passively standing in the background, not even speaking up. So now together, all this, these complex things that go into it, you know, one of the things is, is the, 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 the connection between hearing and genuine faith and seeing and idolatry. It's not, it's not universally across Scripture, but if, keep that theme in mind as you're reading through your Bible this year. There is a tendency in stories in Scripture where the visual creates fascination and idolatry. Think about the story of uh, as, as, the, ex, as the, the Israelites were in the time of Exodus heading toward the Promised Land, there was a, um, a curse that God had brought in the form of serpents that were biting them. God gave them instructions, create a bronze serpent, lift it up, and when the people see it, they will be healed. And so there it's a connection between seeing and healing given by God's command but what happens with that bronze serpent it becomes an idol they get fascinated with it they begin to worship this thing that they can see instead of the God that they can hear and again that verse on on the front of your bulletin faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God you know there's a temptation even in the American church today to do things that are eye candy we call it right to dangle things out in front of us that will entice us and fascinate us and draw our attention. But there's danger down that path at times where it can cloud our ability to really hear the God who speaks and reveals himself through his word. And so I just would encourage you to to dig into that theme, guard your heart. Don't be like Eve, who once confused over what she has heard God say, now becomes fascinated with what she sees. And really, there's a lot of rationalization here. You know, she's using human reason in, in her looking. She's saying, well, okay, logically, three points. I got three points here. A, this is perfectly good for food. It's not poisonous. B, it looks delicious. It's visually appealing. And three, it's desirable for making one wise. Who wouldn't want wisdom? How could something that feels so good be bad? Right? That, that's a, that's a, a, an idea that we hear out there in culture. This is the path that we convince ourselves to go down when we're in the process of yielding to temptation. It's not sin to be tempted. You know, if, if, you were, 
if you thought temptation itself were sin, you would have to leave the world in order to avoid temptation. It's all around you, coming at you. And you can't avoid temptation. But there's a difference between living in a world where there's temptation and yielding willfully to temptation on the path to reaching out and taking hold of the fruit. And hopefully you know the difference. Um, I, I think of it like, you know, if a bird flies over my head, I, I, I can't control that, I can't regulate that, I can't prevent that. If a bird lands on my head and begins to build a nest, there's something I can do at that point. Temptation, you know, there, it's going to come flying by out of unexpected angles and ways at times. You know, you didn't see it coming, you didn't pursue it, you didn't intend this. The enemy's got your number. He'll bring temptation your way that is specifically targeted to you. And you can't prevent that. That is part of living in this world. What do you do when that temptation comes? Are you already fascinated with that thing that the enemy is dangling before you? Do you have three good reasons why this is going to be okay? Is your hand already reaching out to, to take and eat? Do you have someone with you that's maybe backing you up and you're explaining your rationale to them and they're encouraging you, coming along with you in that path of sin? If you do, it's really not even in the category of temptation. At that point, it's already transitioned to sin. Now, if it's just temptation coming your way, you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can quote scripture as Jesus does when he's tempted and rely on God's word as your defense. You can praise him. There's a lot of tools that you can use to counteract the temptations that come. But don't already make up your mind that I'm going to violate what God has said to go after what I desire, what looks tasty, what's going to give me these benefits and rationalize and justify it in that way. And so, you know, Eve has these, these techniques that we all use. You know, she's justifying, she's rationalizing, she's validating, even excusing as her hand is reaching to take that fruit. And her husband is right along with her in that process. And it's, it's after they eat, both of them, verse 7, that then their eyes are opened. And they know that they are naked. That, you know, to, to understand that fully, you've got to go back and read that last verse of chapter 2. And this is kind of getting us into the, into the third point of the sermon here. What does sin do? Well, sin destroys relationship. So at the end of chapter 2, it said, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I mean, this is a foreign concept to us, right? So you read that, it's kind of shocking because we're so much in the not naked and ashamed about even saying the word naked in church category, that it's a bit shocking to read that. We can definitely identify with the immediately after eating the fruit condition of Adam and Eve that they are having their eyes open to the fact that they're naked. They're quickly grabbing whatever they can to cover up their nakedness. And they're using fig leaves at that point. And so already we're seeing little clues that there's a relational rift that's happening where two people could be 
so open and transparent and intimate with one another that they could not even be aware of their nakedness. From that to immediately after sin, getting this self-consciousness where they're looking at themselves and going, oh, I gotta, I gotta hide. I gotta cover up. I need to hold her at arm's length. I mean, there's no other humans around, right? Why are they having to cover up? But already it's, it's creating a rift in that relationship. And at that moment, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The, 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 the rift in the relationship is not just between Adam and Eve, but it's between them and God. And here, you know, I, 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 I hope you don't miss the first part of that verse where God himself is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, he's, he's there to enjoy time together with these beings created in his image. And they're hiding from his presence. And the Lord, it says, but the Lord God called to the man. He's the one pursuing Adam as Adam is hiding. God is going after Adam and, and Eve with him calls out and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Already, the, 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 here, here's, the, here's what happens when you have knowledge of good and evil. You actually have knowledge of evil. You know, Adam already had knowledge of good. He was made in God's image. The garden was good. Every, every aspect of creation was good, 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 good. God said, let there be light, and he saw the light, and it was good. End of the first day. God created the, the, the expanse of water below and beneath. Every step of creation there in chapter 1, it was good, it is good, it is very good. Adam had knowledge of good because he knew God. And all Satan gave him on that day was knowledge of evil. God says, who told you you were naked? And God already knows what's happened. But he's getting Adam to face the realization that I just took from the tree of the knowledge of evil when I already had knowledge of the only one who is good, the one who's the author of all life and goodness. I bought a lie, and I went down a path of really making myself a god, lowercase g, where I get to determine my destiny, I get to... Uh, make a path for myself. I get to compete with all these other gods and goddesses around me of who gets to be in charge and dominate who. And this is the world that they have chosen to, to go into. Who, has, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You know, a, a very valid question maybe you're asking right now. Why did God put that tree in the garden? Right? How many of you have ever wondered that, discussed that, contemplated that? If not, I'm sorry, I just ruined your Sunday. You know, wouldn't it have been better if you and I could have been a committee advising God? Like, God, just pull it, you know, if you don't want them eating of that tree, let's just get it out of there, uproot it, let's just eliminate that possibility. I mean, this is a, it's a fun question to dig into. We don't have an explicit answer here in our, in our text. Um, 
I'll tell you, theologically looking at the whole of Scripture and saying, why is there a tree of knowledge of good and evil? There's another tree in the garden we find out at the end of the chapter and it's referenced elsewhere in Scripture. It's the tree of life. So there's two really significant, super significant trees in the garden. Um, I think it's because God is creating out of love, not out of power. Right? So you think about love. Love in itself entails choice. You know, if I, if I force Heidi to love me, the rest of you would be like, I don't know if that's love. You're kind of creepy. Right? I mean, there, there is a, a, a choosing on her part to give love. Both parties in, in a love relationship are making that choice to die to self, to live for the other, to, to say, I put you first. You know, that's a different picture of the love that we see in, in Hollywood, which is basically, you give me goosebumps and tingles. And that, that's, I love myself, or I love these emotions I'm having when you're here. The, the kind of love we see in God's word, it's an other-focused love. And, and really, why did God create at all? It's an overflow of the love that's eternally existed between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that prompts him to create other beings in his image to enjoy that love, to receive that love, to reciprocate that love, to share that love. He didn't have to create, he chose to. And he created us in his image, which means he chose to create us with the ability to choose. And there's a choice there. Will you love me or not? And in ignoring his voice, in being fascinated with what we see, in reaching out our hand to take and eat and corrupt one another, we have, as a, as a collective human race, said we choose not to love you. And that's what Adam and Eve did on that day. What happens next, you see even more explicitly the rift in relationship as a result of sin. Verse 12. So, so, so God has directly confronted him. Who told you you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree? Adam doesn't confess and say, yes, I have. Forgive me. Instead, he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. In one sentence, he has blame shifted not just to his wife, but to God. God, you know, technically, did I, did I, eat? Well, well, the big issue, God, is she, by the way, she who you gave me. So God, it's your fault and her fault that I may or may not have eaten of the fruit. So blaming, you know, you want to talk about a relational destroyer, not owning up to my sin, instead blaming everyone else, Right? How many of us have had marriage problems because of that one? Now, there, I guarantee there's marriage problems happening on this day. And so then, God's like, oh, really? So he turns to the woman to get her version of the story. What is this that you have done? The woman is more gracious than, than her husband. She doesn't turn around and blame him back. Oh, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. The devil made me do it. Right? So that, that, again, blaming, not owning up. How do you, so, so looking at some of these elements that we've seen here as sin is destroying relationship with God and with one another. You know, we're tempted to be like Adam in even all of these aspects. 
that when you sin, you're tempted to hide. The last thing you want any of us to know is your sin issue. You want to pretend like you're just fine, you know, just put on your happy Christian face, get your happy Christian cup of coffee, do your happy Christian handshake on a Sunday morning, and just call it good. We'll just, you know, we'll just go to Chipotle after church and it'll all be fine, right? We like to hide from our sin. Well, well when, you, when you yield to sin, if you hide from God and from one another, you're going to stay in that place of condemnation, guilt, shame, loneliness, isolation, broken relationship. The antidote to that temptation to hide after you've yielded to sin is in 1 John 1.9. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The opposite of hiding is confessing. And when you come to the gracious, loving God who created you for a relationship with him, and you come to him and say, I am flawed. I blew it. And it's not the first time. And you confess. He is gracious, forgiving, and he cleanses. So he's faithful and just. Come to him. That's the antidote to hiding. What about the feeling of shame as they're, as they're looking at their nakedness, they're sowing fig leaves? Well, when you yield to sin, don't fixate on the shame. Don't look to the shame because it can take you to one extreme or the other. It can either bring you to a place of where Adam and Eve were, where you're driven to hide from God because of the shame. And now you're, you're basically doing what we just saw. First John says, don't hide from God. So don't allow your shame to drive you from his presence. But don't be like on the opposite extreme of shame either, where you start to look at the shame so much that you, you, know, you try to deal with the shame issue and you throw a, a pride parade for yourself. Like, I am proud of my sin. Right? That's not going to help you either. It's not about the shame. Instead of looking to the shame, look to the Savior. Look to the one who can really deal with the sin issue and the shame that accompanies it. The best way to do that is to pray like King David did. Verse, uh, chapter, or Psalm 51. Now, if you are uh, struggling with a habitual sin or a big sin issue right now that you think if anybody in this room knew what I was going through, there would never be grace extended to me. God couldn't forgive me for this. Read the story of King David and be encouraged. I know for a fact that none of you have lusted after your neighbor's wife, impregnated her, and then had her husband killed to cover it up. Because if you had, you, you'd be at the county penitentiary right now and not at church with us on a Sunday morning. So, so that's what David did. That's his story. And yet in Psalm 51, with that kind of a sin issue, he prays a prayer. He sings a song to God, a psalm that says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You can make that prayer your prayer in whatever feeling of shame you have because of your sin. And you know, God answered that prayer for David despite the adultery, the affair, the murder, 
the lying, the deception, a whole snowball of big sin. When David prayed this prayer of repentance and humility, God responded and answered. And he did just as David asked, created in him a clean heart. The final verdict on David, his title, man after God's own heart. Man, you and I would never give that kind of grace to a guy like David, right? And yet that's what God, our loving God, does when you confess your sin. He's willing to give you that kind of a title, not the title connected to your sin, but instead a title, son, daughter, forgiven, redeemed, cleansed, love. That's the label he puts on you. And that supersedes whatever lies the enemy's been whispering. What about this, this third reality, blaming? Um, when you yield to sin, don't be like Adam and Eve. Don't blame Satan. Don't blame your spouse. Don't blame God. Don't blame the other people around you. Instead, own it. That's called confession. We've already covered it. And that, that's the very thing that Adam and Eve did not do. The, the rest of the chapter is now specific consequences uh, to each party involved. And God gives some consequences to the serpent. Verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So consequences to each person. Now, did those things come true? You know, did God make predictions that were accurate? Well, we, we've seen in history, yeah, exactly what God said would happen as a result of sin is still happening this day. Sin's effects are far-reaching, long-lasting, all-consuming. And, you know, you could read the next few, I would encourage you, read the next few chapters of Genesis to see how that works out. In chapter 4, this family is affected by sin. God cautions, so Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. God, God has a one-on-one -on -one with Cain. It says, careful Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. Be, be careful, Cain. There's a temptation and you're, you're, you're rationalizing, you're justifying, you're reaching out your hand. Don't go there. Resist. Turn. And the end of that story is that Cain kills his brother Abel. Chapter 5 it's a genealogy list. In that genealogy toward the end, there's a man named Lamech who names his son Noah, which means comfort. 
Why does he name his son Comfort? He reasons this. He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Uh, so th- they are living this out in those early generations. This is not, you know, we're not living in a garden with abundant fruit now. We're living in a, in a cursed land. Man, just look out, you know, here in southeast Aurora. <laughs> you get a taste of what, what, what it's like to try to farm these days, right? Um, it's hard work. And this is the world that we live in. And so uh, Lamech names his son Noah in hope that God is going to bring comfort from the, the result of the curse. In chapter 6 now, as Noah's story begins to, to unfold, there's a, a couple of verses that are very sobering. Verse 5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. You know, in looking at all that he created, he's like, none of these people are desiring relationship with me. All they can think about, all they can do with all their time is evil. And then in verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. That sets us up for next week and the third word of our Genesis outline, creation, fall, flood. Now there's a, I don't want you to miss this key verse in chapter 3. This is the good news of the chapter. A little glimmer of hope. So if you remember, the shame of their nakedness prompted Adam and Eve to clothe themselves with uh, fig leaves that they had sewn together. But look at just this little verse hidden there in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now if you're an astute Bible reader, um, you're going to get some little glimmers of what God is going to do in his redemption plan much later in the story. But here, you know, really, this is the first death. There's some animals that died to produce those skins that the Lord God fashioned. It's the first recording of death in global history. And God has now sacrificed a substitute that's provided a way for the shame of sin to be covered over for Adam and Eve. He has provided this. It's not something that, he, that Adam and Eve did. It's a, it's a garment that God provided to clothe, to cover. There's blood that was shed. And stay tuned because this is a part of God's redemption plan. It's a little glimpse of what God is going to do through his own son, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that Jesus went to the cross to take the burden of your shame, to cover over your guilt, to cleanse you, the provision of God for you. And so there is hope, even in this dark chapter in Genesis 3, of what God is doing to deal with the sin problem. Let's finish it out. Verse 22, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has now become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So there's banishment being driven out, kept from the tree of life, and yet God's provision for the healing, that first blood sacrifice, a substitute. And in your life, I hope today that you can get past the shame and the guilt and the hiding and the blaming. And today you can get to that place of joy and rejoicing like the song that we sang to start with. My sin, oh the joy of this glorious bliss. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And let's go to him in prayer today as we thank him for that sacrifice that he provides. I invite you to stand with me in his presence today.